This is the Political Monitor Podcast. In today's show, a freewheeling discussion of GOP presidential candidates, the Ashley Madison hack, medical marijuana, and everyone's favorite secret Batman, Donald Trump. I'm Clay Wirestone, a columnist and editor at The Monitor, and I'm glad to welcome our politics editor, Jonathan Van Fleet. Hi, John. Hello, Clay, and all of our listeners. Yes. And uh, our political reporter, Casey McDermott. Hello, Clay. One of our political reporters, yeah. I should say. Um, so it has been a week full of incident. Uh, we've had an education forum with Republicans. We've had a Trump town hall. We've had some squabbles over a medical marijuana bill and putting together dispensaries. Um, a whole lot of stories, but we kind of feel like nothing has stood out head and shoulders above the other stories this week, so I thought we'd have a little bit of a free discussion to start things off this week. So, Casey, what have you been doing this week? What have you been looking at? Um, so this week, I think the big event that I helped to cover this week was a, an education summit that took place in Londonderry. Um, that was uh, co-sponsored by an independent education website, um, news website called The 74 um, and also uh, was co-sponsored by the American Federation for Children, which is a conservative advocacy group that my understanding is that they are um, pro-school choice. Um, and that was a message that you heard uh, again and again and again from the candidates who were involved in that. Um, you had six presidential candidates who signed on for this. It was Jeb Bush, Carly Fiorina, John Kasich, Bobby Jindal, Scott Walker, and Chris Christie. And it was interesting. I didn't realize this until I was kind of sitting down to um, write the story alongside my colleague, Ellen Nelson, who was also there. Um, but it was all governors except for Carly Fiorina, who draws from her experience in the private sector. Um, but that's interesting, I think, because the governors are often the ones who do have um, the most direct oversight for education policies in their home states, um, maybe more so than you know a senator or a congressman might. Um, so several of them were able to really draw on their experiences overseeing um, you know their states. Jeb Bush talked you know in great detail about the stuff that he did in Florida. Same with Bobby Jindal in Louisiana. Um, you heard a lot of the same themes coming from them. It was a lot of, you know, we want more choice and competition. Um, we think that teachers unions are standing in the way to progress. Um, that was a, a major theme coming out of the day um, was kind of, you know, we don't really like teachers unions and we think that they're too, um, uh, you know, mired in conflict and mired in negativity and stuck in the past and too political and we really like teachers, but we would like them to have less power in these unions. Yes. So. Or in Chris Christie's case, he would want to punch the unions in the face. Yeah, there's, um, I think there's, that was in the context of him saying that, you know, they're punching us, we should punch back. Um, mm -hmm. 
I think in that case, it was referring to us, you know, Republicans, because they often side with Democratic politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and there was a yeah. big demonstration there of was. teachers union, yeah. teacher union folks, folks outside the forum. Yeah, NEA New Hampshire um, had organized some educators who came there, and actually a few of them had trouble getting into the event, um, several of whom, um, according to Ella's reporting, um, were registered for the event but were not allowed to attend. So um, there was definitely some... Um, some animosity on on display between those two kind of competing competing forces. Yeah, she also reported that the police had asked the uh, mm-hmm. the NEA members to leave more than once, but they mm-hmm. didn't. And I and I always find that interesting when people are on public property mm-hmm. and they're they're standing there, they're protesting, they're doing whatever. You know, sometimes it's uh, you know free speech and you can stand there. Other times it's considered disruptive and you need mm-hmm. to get a permit in order to do it. And mm-hmm. and certain environments require it and certain mm-hmm. and other environments don't. Regardless, they didn't leave and they mm-hmm. weren't arrested. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I I also I I think what struck me when just reading the coverage about it was, you know, so many folks talk about the size of the Republican field this year. Mm -hmm. You've got 17 Republicans Mm -hmm. uh, contesting for the nomination Mm -hmm. and you have six folks Mm -hmm. at this forum. Mm -hmm. And yet, ultimately, the substantive Mm -hmm. policy differences between them are very slim. Mm -hmm. Like they, they pretty much it's it's kind of a chorus. Almost. Yeah, yeah. I will say, you know, there's definitely some differences when it comes to the issue of Common Core. Although I think even those who are, um, you know, more favorable toward that, that would be Jeb Bush and John Kasich. They even have to kind of hedge a little bit and walk a fine line between saying like, you know, I support Common Core, and more often it comes out as, you know, I support high standards, and here's why I think high standards is. Um, important and why I think, you know, measuring your progress and measuring student achievement is important. Um, but with with the exception of that issue, they really were unified on a lot of fronts, um, just generally speaking. Um, and I think part of that was a function of the questions. And I think it's always difficult, um, particularly this year when you have so many people, just to make sure that you're balancing, giving everyone an opportunity to respond on the same issues and hearing everyone's perspective on the same issues, but also balancing that with, you know, not creating a situation where you're getting redundancies in in those answers. So they did ask kind of a set of general, um, a set of questions that addressed pretty much the same topics. They also asked all of them to identify, you know, what was your favorite teacher and what do you think, you know, what qualities stand out in them as kind of a way to get them to talk about the qualities that are important in educators. What was the what was the audience like there? I think it was a mix. It was definitely, you know, there were a handful of state legislators. The ones that I saw, I think, were all Republicans. Um, a mix of students, I think, community members. It was hard to kind of pin down mm-hmm. a single demographic that was there, but it did seem, just judging by the applause lines, um, that it was a an audience that was friendly to the viewpoints that were being addressed, particularly on reining in um, the federal government's role in education. Um, so, John, uh, turning to you now, uh, what what kind of in this past week has, has stood out to you? I would love to answer that question, but before I do... Okay, yes. Before you do, I wanted to point out who was missing from our education summit. And who might that have been? Everyone's 
everyone's favorite candidate, Donald Trump. So um, GOP frontrunner, he is national right. and, and, and in the state. And so to be to be serious, what I wanted to bring up is since the last time we spoke, uh, he had a he had a forum in Hampton on Friday night and another one in Derry. So he didn't go to the Education Forum Wednesday morning in Londonderry. He had a town hall that night um, later on where he panned and criticized many of the other Republican uh, contenders, the other candidates. But in both of these events, he's got thousands of people showing up. He's got long lines of people Mm -hmm. wanting to see him. And so there is a real dynamic to that campaign, which is different than the other candidates. And our news columnist, Ray Duckler, took a look at one of the men behind that campaign, which is Corey Lewandowski. He is a New Hampshire guy, a uh, a former state director of American for Prosperity here in New Hampshire. And he kind of took a look at some of uh, the, the... tactics that Lewandowski has used in New Hampshire, some of the shots he's calling on the Trump campaign, and by all intents and purposes, he's been pretty successful. Yeah. Well, and he's a very, um, he's not been afraid to step on toes in the state. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Lewandowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, uh, and especially in kind of crossing crossing the, the state Republican Party, mm-hmm. too. He, what was it? He, he worked with Bob Smith, right? Yes. In, which was, uh, you know, a, a very. Uh, some people had said at the time that whoever took that job was basically sealing their the fate. Their sealing their fate as a Republican operative in New Hampshire. So bucking the party, bucking the trend. Um, you know, this role that he has with Trump seems to really fit. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting too to see that you know the Trump strategy is just so. You know, you couldn't really ask for a bigger highlight, you know, between this kind of slightly wonky education forum where everybody's just kind of together and talking about solutions or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just anything Trump does is a mega event Mm -hmm. uh, here in New... Well, actually, and in Iowa, too. Like, he visited the Iowa State Fair last week, I guess, and it was a gigantic event. He brought his helicopter to that, I think. He was he was giving kids helicopter yeah. rides. He was. Yeah. I yes. was think the... I read that a kid asked him if he was Batman, and he replied, "I am Batman." So, <laughs> so I, I might which, be paraphrasing that, but that was kind of a which does lead to the question of when will Donald Trump bring his helicopter to New Hampshire? That is a good question. And give New Hampshire kids a chance to ride the Trump copter. This is New Hampshire. We need helicopter bungee jumping, not just rides. <laughs> that seems unsafe. But in, and if Trump is Batman, it does beg the question, who's the Joker? <laughs> who's the Penguin? <laughs> well, that's, let's, let's that's something that our uh, that our uh, our listeners can can perhaps spend some time working out. Maybe you can put that in the next <laughs> political quiz. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's yeah. That's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Gosh, it's kind of hard to know where to go from that. Well, point, you John. did ask me before what I've been following. Yes, that's this right. Week. What have you been following this week? Jonathan Ashley Bebb? Madison. Ha- okay. Uh, I find this to be very interesting um, from, a, from a perspective that you guys might not expect. For a long time, I've been interested in the websites that government employees visit. Mm-hmm. And I have tried to get the information that shows the ISP addresses that government computers generally v- go to. Um, for example, 
if uh, if well, to give you a perfect example, when we created the political monitor just a couple weeks ago, we found out that actually it was an old domain name that uh, the state state computer system had blocked and they actually had to whitelist it before state employees could visit our own website. Okay, mm -hmm. so certain certain communities have what what are commonly referred to as net nannies, which which uh, prevent them from visiting certain websites that have questionable content. Mm -hmm. Other communities don't. Some have uh, very strict policies, and others have very liberal policies. So uh, the Ashley Madison Data League. So Ashley Madison is essentially. Uh, a, a, date, a dating website for people who are already married and not to date their spouses. Dating is favorable yeah, term, well, yes. You know, but it have is, an affair, yes. yes a secret it, affair, I believe is how they have it. So this data release uh, has now shown that um, there are some web, uh, some email addresses from several uh, government um some several towns in New Hampshire. So Manchester, I believe, had four, at least four email addresses uh, that were, that had Ashley Madison accounts. The uh, city of Nashua did, as well as Dover and Milford. So that kind of begs the question of what, what sites are these, uh, are people, employees in these towns able to visit? So I've, like I said, I've been interested in the topic of web usage on government computers by government employees for a long time and this kind of brings that issue back up. Mm -hmm. uh, Ali Morris is looking into that on a state level and the state has pretty restrictive uh, web usage policies. So what that means is, and, and I worked at a, at a company where if you tried to go on the State Liquor Commission's website, it would actually block you because tobacco and alcohol were considered to be like taboo subjects. So uh, the state has pretty restrictive policies and uh, state, com state employees wouldn't generally, the IT director's opinion is state employees wouldn't have been able to get onto the Ashley Madison website. Like I said before, there are others that say, you know, go to wherever you want, but the supervisors should should keep track. You know, I heard that in Nashua New Hampshire several times, which is we let our managers uh, monitor our employees, and there is no there's no real limit on what websites people mm -hmm. can visit. Well, and that's just a that's just a huge and kind of ongoing story because basically the entire user database of that website was was hacked and released so there's just potentially you know millions of of names and addresses and potentially identifying details that are are out in the public now they are and they're not so there were yesterday there were a bunch of searchable databases of the people who had Ashley Madison accounts and I believe a judge has ruled that uh, those are uh, those were publishing uh, private information and those had to come down so several of the sites that uh, that had searchable info are no longer functional today mm -hmm. although of course people might have downloaded or saved the information before the takedown notices were issued so mm -hmm. um, so that's that that is a an, an interesting and ongoing story and I guess the the lesson is that you pretty much can't have a web account anywhere without kind of the notion that it may at some point be 
be compromised. Um, so, John, what else? Uh, what else? Uh, there was a couple stories that we had that uh, that I really liked this week that I that I felt were scoops that were kind of I hadn't really seen reported elsewhere. And the, and the first was by Ali Morris. Uh, this Monday, she she reported that the state police had received uh, several body cameras to do to run a pilot program to essentially figure out how how equipping other uh, state police officers with body cams would work in New Hampshire. They had these uh, cameras, three of them in fact, for a period of time, but decided not to go ahead with the pilot program. They said they lacked the protocols in order to uh, conduct that pilot program. There were concerns about, you know, different issues and privacy concerns. You know, the state has a wiretapping law. You can't record one uh, a party without their consent, this audio record. Uh, and for this recording, you do have my consent, Clay. Oh, well, um, thank you, John. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so I thought that that was very interesting because, you know, obviously body cameras is a, uh, a an a, ongoing topic, you know, with the, the, the role of police in society, uh, whether they are protecting and serving or whether, you know, whether the people they arrest are being treated fairly. All, body cameras is, is often viewed as... The, the check and balance on both sides of that equation. Well, and there are other police departments in the state that do actually have and use body cameras. Correct. I mean, this is the whole situation with the um, the man who was shot in, where was, where was it? Was it Bath? It, it was Bath, yes. Yeah, yeah. In, uh, after being pursued by a couple of officers. And that, and that then, but interestingly enough, like the, the footage that was taking, taken of that confrontation and that shooting has since become tied up in essentially a right to know lawsuit it sure is um, because the question is you know sh- is, is this graphic footage is is this in the public's right to know to to release this footage that the man's family has has said that they they feel like there's too much you know trauma associated to it potentially harm to the man's children but that's that's being being litigated right now it is being litigated so the attorney general's office was set to release the the body cam videos of this fatal shooting and uh, the family filed uh, a request in court, uh, basically an injunction, preventing the release of the videos claiming that it would uh, be an invasion of privacy. Mm -hmm. And um, several newspapers including the Monitor, the Valley News, the Union Leader and the WMUR have have, have filed briefs in the case asking for the videos to be released. Um, that is the only real way that the, the the spirit of the right to know law can be upheld. And the spirit is to give the people of New Hampshire the power to know what their government's up to. And if you cannot view that video, you have no way to measure whether the police actions were correct or incorrect in that. All you can all you can really know is another government agency's review of that, which would be the AG's review, and they said the shooting was justified. But an independent, if you are a citizen in New Hampshire and you want to look at it for yourself and determine for yourself, make a judgment, uh, you can't do that unless that video is available. And I mean, it's these very kinds of questions that, that made, the, I guess, the state police a little wary mm-hmm. of, of doing the pilot program. And I guess they have, have actually argued against body cameras in the past. 
um, too. So, I mean, you, um, and so Casey, not to not to leave you out of things here, but you you also have been actually working on some some new stuff this week too. Yeah, right? I um, I wasn't out covering as many events. I wanted to kind of take a step back and do some reporting on some of the advertising that has been hitting the airwaves and being reserved in New Hampshire so far. Um, so people have obviously started seeing these for a few months now, but wanted to try to, to um, kind of take some time to comb through the uh, treasure trove of FCC public inspection files that exist online just to see kind of what trends were there, what, you know, the different rates were, and actually found some, some kind of interesting stuff. Um, and this has actually been, I've seen this reported elsewhere, but um, something interesting that, that's happening this year that has happened in past cycles, but experts are anticipating that it's going to continue to, um, you know, emerge as a trend is that, you know, a candidate and his or her affiliated super PAC, um, when they buy ads for the same time slot on the same week are actually being charged much different rates because mm. of the FCC guidelines that exist around um, what they can charge campaigns and candidates, they have to offer them what's called the lowest unit rate. So they can't charge them, you know, exorbitant amounts, but there are no such laws for what they can charge super PACs. So you're seeing some pretty big differences, um, particularly I've noticed between, you know, Chris Christie versus his super PAC is being charged, uh, Chris Christie is being charged much less for mm -hmm. the same ads during a certain time slot than his super PAC has been charged in some cases. Um, so there's that. And it's also just, you know, talking to some analysts, um, they had pointed out that you're seeing kind of ads used a little bit differently this cycle, whereas in the past, I think that they were, um, you know, people who were maybe the front runners would be quick to kind of throw them up on the airwaves as a, you know, a sign of strength or kind of flouting their uh, financial heft, but now what you're starting to see is that some of those middle tier, maybe lower tier candidates are the ones that are really hitting the airwaves early. Um, and part of that comes back to uh, a need for more name recognition. So, Well, there's a, there's a, a couple of points here that, mm -hmm. that come to my mind. One of which is, is I, I think I remember back in the 2012 election that this was one of something that some commentators brought up that, you know, possibly the effect of mm -hmm. some super PACs might be overstated because of this very point that mm -hmm. you were making about the rates. So in other words, super PACs can raise a lot more money, but they're also going to be charged mm -hmm. a lot more money yeah. to run the same ads yeah. that a campaign might might run. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of them, it's not like they're exactly um, strapped for cash. So a lot of them do have exponentially more in their bank accounts than mm -hmm. their affiliated or unaffiliated, excuse me, they're not supposed to be working with each other, but that they're, you know, sister campaign would have. Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, it's also important. One of the things that I was cautioned just in talking to the people who monitor this is that, you know, often it's easy for the reporters to kind of chase the, you know, the shiny object of the story that, oh, this candidate is spending four million on this ad buy when in reality, it's important to look at what that's buying them and when they're buying it. And it's a lot you know, more nuanced than just the big picture number that can, uh, candidates and campaigns will push out there. Well, and that's a, a kind of a newer version of the old story of, you know, such and such campaign releases an ad. Yeah. And it's like, what does it actually mean yeah. that a campaign releases an ad? Sometimes they just throw up a yeah. video on YouTube 
the Gino was made for $50. Yeah. And you released an ad and you can get a news story yeah. out of that. And then there's also the added dynamic um, of, you know, the rise in digital advertising that we're seeing not only on, you know, the pre-roll that you see online or, um, you know, I've seen a handful of Hulu ads already this cycle, um, but you also are seeing Snapchat advertising, Instagram advertising, Facebook, Twitter, and those um, don't have the same level of, you know, disclosure or oversight that is required in the broadcast um, arena, but they also, you know, all offer certain things to the campaigns in terms of reaching certain demographics. And even in some cases with Facebook and Twitter, being able to really, really pinpoint the exact type of voter that you want to see because of the data that is given. So, Well, and it's also just curious to think about that in terms of this election where, or this primary Mm -hmm. election where so much is being driven, at least in the case of Donald Trump, by Mm -hmm. free media coverage. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, I can't remember actually seeing a Trump ad at all. There have not. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think there are any. No. Uh, which, you know, I think says something about how unusual kind of this, this, this time is mm-hmm. um, in terms of what he's doing. Um, I can also just say, in, as for ways of a, of a personal plug, or, uh, for the, at the Political Monitor website, besides all of these other stories that we've been talking about, uh, I've also started putting together a, a weekly political quiz that you can see. Uh, we, it's usually going to go up on Fridays, and there is a print version. It's the same quiz, same questions. That's running in our Friday uh, forum section. So if you want to did test you, your knowledge, did you take the quiz this week, I Casey? Not yet. It, it's. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've been told by some that it is more difficult okay. than last week's, but I took the quiz this week mm-hmm. and I, in fact, scored an eight out of ten. And I am, I am very disturbed by that. I am going to have to do my political homework this week. I, I feel like there was a couple questions that weren't entirely, well, I guess they're fair, but they were they were tricky. There, well, there was also one question where I generally the, all of the answers can be found at the Political Monitor website itself, but there was one, is one question where you might have to go to uh, you know, do some research at like Wikipedia or some news sites to, to figure out the true answer. I'm confident that Casey would get 10 out of 10 regardless. I don't know. Do you think that's I don't, I don't do like that's these true? high expectations. But yeah, I'll have to test it out and report back next week. Okay, so let's see. So we've, we've covered a lot of stuff. We've talked about the Education Forum. We've talked about, we've touched on Trump. Um, we talked about the body cameras. Um, what else? What any, have Anything come to mind, John, that we, we haven't brought up so far this week? Uh, medical marijuana, mm-hmm. okay, I think is worth uh, worth a mention. Mm-hmm. The state had, uh, Casey knows all about this. She's been covering medical marijuana up to this point. You want to explain what's been going on? Yeah, so basically um, the state had licensed or, you know, said to four companies that they could move forward with setting up dispensaries or alternative treatment centers is the bureaucratic term for them in New Hampshire, but dispensaries um, in four regions of the state. So that process has been underway since about June. Um, So in the meantime, um, those companies had been working with towns to kind of scout out locations for the dispensaries and also the cultivation sites where they would be growing and cultivating the therapeutic cannabis that they would be um, offering 
at the dispensaries. So what happened this week is that last Friday, um, the Department of Health and Human Services announced that it was going to hold a series of public forums starting this week um, in the towns that were uh, looked at as kind of the locate the perspective locations for these. So those four towns were Peterborough, Plymouth, Merrimack, and Lebanon, I believe. Um, and those were kind of, you know, the designated uh, headquarters of the program in each of those regions. Um, and um, so the first of those hearings was held on Monday in Plymouth. Um, and that attracted, according to reporting by my colleague Nick Reed, who attended the meeting, um, pretty uh, a pretty contentious discussion. Um, he reported that, you know, a lot of the residents who showed up felt that the state was not you know, as engaging or forthcoming about this process as it should have been, that there should have been more time for public input earlier on in the process, and that a lot of them felt like, well, you know, this decision seems like it's already kind of been made for us, and there's only so much that we can do right now. And that's been, um, I think, a theme that has run throughout this entire process is mm -hmm. the public feeling a little bit disengaged from the state and the officials who are overseeing the rollout of this program, um, not only with regard to the establishment of the dispensaries, but also when it comes to the patients and the caregivers who are looking to get this substance feel like you know a lot of their concerns have fallen on deaf ears sometimes well, and it's all just taken a, a it's long taken time a very, very like long that's time yeah most, in many way cases like the biggest complaint yeah um i mean this program it was signed into law two years ago um i remember a year ago um it was right after i started at the monitor um there was a, a rally that was held on the one year anniversary of the law being um enacted that was basically you know, a bunch of people saying, what's taking so long? You're not listening to us. Um, we really want you to pick up the pace because people are suffering from this or from, you know, the conditions that could potentially be um, comforted by access to this substance. Um, and in the, you know, in the state's defense, there is a timeline that was spelled out in the law where they had to meet certain benchmarks by certain, you know, 18 months out, one year out. And there's some debate over whether they actually followed that timeline in some respects. For example, at 18 months out, which was um, January of this year, there was a provision of the law that said they were supposed to have issued, um, I think, at least two, uh, you know, selected at least two dispensaries to operate. But there was a caveat in there that said, you know, provided that they received um, dispensaries that met certain qualifications. So that's kind of the the loophole that exists there. Um, but that's also still being, you know, debated and discussed. But yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of frustration undoubtedly on the part of patients and advocates who have been waiting for access to this. Um, a lot of uh, concerns that have been voiced to the state about its approach to this. Um, I think the state will tell you that they're working as quickly as they can, that they are operating on limited resources. And it also is important to keep in mind that this program was set up to be self-financing and self-sustaining. So there's not additional money that was allocated for like staff positions or special, you know, officials that would be devoted to this program. A lot of this are this work is being done by people who also have 
other assignments and responsibilities within the department. It's so. the true New Hampshire way. It is. Yeah, <laughs> I'm learning we're that. We're not allocating a lot of extra extra to do this. Actually, we're not allocating anything extra yeah. to do this. I, I recall Clayton Holton, Clayton Holden, uh, one of the advocates for the medical marijuana laws. He testified several times. He was a young man in a wheelchair, and uh, he said several times during his testimony that he fully expected to die before this law was ever enacted. So he would never be able to smoke marijuana legally in a therapeutic fashion while he was alive. And he has, in fact, passed away. So he, he was a little prophetic in that. Um, John Reagan, the sponsor of this legislation, Casey was really critical this week of mm -hmm. the Department of Health and Human Services and their rollout of it mm -hmm. and the the timing of the public hearings, the inclusion of the public. So here you've got you know Deerfield Republican who who really the architect of this law is saying that the state mm -hmm. so far has really botched it. Yeah, and one of the architects of the law. Mm -hmm. There were others who were also involved, but he has been a vocal advocate for the expansion of medical marijuana and also um, I know this year he backed an effort to allow home grow and he was a vocal critic of the state for not allowing people to cultivate this on their own property. Um, but yeah, I think that the comments that you saw this week as reported by Nick were definitely um, a little bit more forceful than we had heard before and I think that might be reflective of just, you know, the continuing frustration that has been building over this long period of time as the program gets up and running. Any notion as to when these when dispensaries might actually end up opening? I think they're looking at the beginning of next year. So it's it, I think it's shaping up to maybe be early 2016, but even that seems like it's kind of a cautious estimate just because of the um, you know the processes that have to take place to actually you know get the sites ready, get the safety provisions in place, grow the substances. Right. You know, we're not just talking about things, you know, this is a plant, so it has to have time to, you know, to grow. Um, and they have to get hooked up with suppliers for other, you know, items that would go along with this. So um, a lot of those processes have already kind of, you know, the groundwork has been laid for that. And some of the companies that are operating in New Hampshire do have experience operating elsewhere. So they're familiar with the landscape and the industry. But um yeah, the last time that I talked to people who were involved in the companies, it sounded like it was going to be kind of the first quarter of 2016 was the target. So definitely not over yet. Not, not <laughs> at all, no. Um, so looking forward this next uh, this next week or so, um, anything anything on the agenda for you guys? Anything that you're looking forward to we will see another parade of candidates coming mm -hmm. through the state um over the weekend i think we're seeing carly fiorina lindsey graham um early next week we will see bernie sanders chris christie marco rubio martin o'malley ted cruz um in you know in the weeks ahead so i think we'll continue to see those guys coming through very good. Bernie's got a town hall in Salem Sunday night, and uh, I am really looking forward to improving my score on your political quiz. <laughs> well, well, I'll, I'll try to make it just that much harder okay. for next week. Anyway, John, Casey, thanks so much. Always good to chat. Yes, same here. Thanks, Clay. Okay.
Thanks for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes or Stitcher, and follow along for all the latest political news at politics.conqueredmonitor.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.